a vision that John is having. Some have said Revelation 12 could be considered truly the the whole second half of the book of Revelation. It's almost a big break in which something new is happening. A new section is uh, introduced before us. And we started here today. Revelation 12, John says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. These are the two symbols or visions that he has. One is a sign of a woman. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in agony and giving birth. And here's the second one. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them on the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to the throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. And he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness in the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out of his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sea, the sand of the sea. And there we have something that's very clear. I don't know why we move up here. Um, there is, there's the story of the dragon. 
In um, 1473, a man by the name of Nicholas Copernicus was born, a Polish man from Turham. He was the son of a very wealthy, well-to-do merchant. And Nicholas Copernicus received one of the best educations that you could have ever had in the 1400s. He was a lawyer, an artisan. He knew many things. Toward the later parts of his adult life, he gave his attention to the stars. And he gave his attention to the heavens. What resulted from that was a revolution. People call it Copernicum Revolution. What we have before us today is that. This is a vision of heaven. Now see what Copernicus did, he did with the naked eye. All he did was look up to the heavens long enough and make notes, meticulous notes, long enough that he realized that the earth was not the center of the universe. And he discovered that a heliocentric system was better than a geocentric system. And he didn't even have a telescope to see it. Revolutions work this way. This sermon series, my hope and aim is that it would be revolutionary. My hope and aim, humbly before God, relying on His aid to really accomplish anything good, the amount of time and meditation that went into this series of sermons, I hope would produce wonderful things in the sense of revolution. Because what a revolution does is that it doesn't change the world. A revolution sees the world for the way it really is. And then that changes the world. See, Copernicus did not change the solar system. What he did is he saw the world for what it really is. And what happened was a scientific revolution. We are to eat food, we are to sing songs, and we are to slay the dragon. That's nothing new. What I hope is that we see that for what it really is. Every meal that you will ever eat. Every song that you will ever sing. And every spiritual confrontation that you will ever engage in. That you will see, have a revolution to see what this really is. Notice, eat food. There are three meals a day. There are seven days in a week. That is 21 times a week in which you can use those as divine appointments to be hospitable to one another or others in your world. That's not revolutionary, but it is. You're already doing it. I'm not asking you to do anything different. I'm asking you to reorient, to see what's really before you. That we have a common table at your home. We have a covenant table here. And we have a consummate table in the new heavens, new earth, in which we'll all be spread out before a banquet, before the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are all things that we do all day. The revolution is seeing them for what they really are. Why has God given you a kitchen table? Why has he given you food? So that you might love as you have been loved. And not alter your schedule in one bit. And we're supposed to sing songs. In other words, to say, did you know that Christians go to church? That's not revolutionary. Christians go to church on Sunday. Yes, but Why? See the world for the way it really is. It is the Lord's day because he is Lord of the cosmos. 
And we sing songs because he's worthy of every praise. And our songs are prayers, transcendent prayers of actual interaction between the most holy, triune, holy God. Therefore, to see things the way they really are, this is it. This is the best of the best. I didn't change anything. But if you see it that way, it changes everything. And so now here we come to find another vision to realize that there is a beast called the dragon. And we are called, we have to lock arms together and fight him. This revelation is a revelation that was given in the heavens. The revelation, the real visions begin in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. In 4.1 it says that John looked and behold a door of heaven was opened to him. He could see into the heavenlies whether in his mind's eye or some sort of mediation of imagery was given to him. And he saw a lamb that was slain, though he was slain, standing. And that lamb sat on a throne and ruled the world. He looked into the heavens and saw what was really being done up there. And the revolution is actually a revelation. And this revelation should produce in us as a church a reformation. We are a reformed church. That means we are very interested in not being creative and not trying to do funny little gimmicky things. We have God's word. We have this world. We have his spirit. Christ died and rose. Now let's go. That's it. There's, it's strictly business. This, this revolution should produce a reformation that if God is working in and among us, then people will repent of their sins. There will be less crime and less evil in the world. And we as a church will love one another in a unique way. Then we'll know that it's truly happened. A reformation is upon us. But in order to have that, we need to be reoriented. We need to look to the heavens and find really what this cosmic battle is that you and I are engaged in. And here we have our two signs that are given to us this morning. John looked. He looked up to the heavens, and these were the two signs before him. He saw a woman clothed with the sun standing on the moon and a diadem of 12 stars adorning her head. And he also saw a sign of a great red dragon with seven horns, I'm sorry, seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. What we are doing here is I am telling you of a vision. Now, when we go to our living rooms today, what you're going to usually find is a, a very uh, flat box on your wall or on a stand. It's called a television. And some people still pay for cable. Some people don't. I don't know what I'd do without a television now. We have to watch Blippi every day. And if you don't know what that is, you are blessed. The, um, the reality is this, though. The reality is this. We have little boxes in our house that tell a vision. Okay? That's a television. I love the play on word. Hopefully you never forget it. But that's actually also what's happening. It, they, it is communicating to you, for good or bad, a vision. A vision. Now, what we have been given, we are told at the end of Revelation, blessed is anyone who reads the words of this book. We are here seated before God to have him give us a vision. This is another vision. 
From the television, we will have conservative versus liberal dichotomies, or Republican and Democrat, Russia, Ukraine. The television is always giving us these. What I am here to say is that we must sit here before this vision and find the ultimate dichotomy. There is a woman and there is a dragon. This, this is the vision that casts all other visions. This is the vision that frames every other type of conflict that can be in the world. For there is a woman and there is a dragon. Before we approach this vision, we should take a minute to say what exactly is the way to interpret these signs. Because the book of Revelation is full of many, many signs. The point here that is clear from this vision that we read as we get into it now is that it is obvious that Jesus has conquered Satan and all his powers. And Jesus at this moment is presently working to conquer Satan and all his powers through the church, his disciples. Those two things are clear. Jesus has already conquered Satan and all his powers and Jesus is presently working to conquer Satan and all his powers. Now, many people have different interpretations. And so, I'll look through them and lay a case here before we get into this vision. There's a few of them. One of them is called, is preterism. It's a fun word to remember. It would be helpful to know it. Preterism. Preterism is the view that people adopt with Revelation as they see most of these visions as being in the past, already fulfilled historical events. The majority of people who see Revelation this way interpret most of the whole book as occurring with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There's another view called historicism. That is the view that when people look at these symbols, they try to plug them in or apply them to modern church history. So therefore there's a Reformation, and there is a Inquisition, and there was a World War I, World War II. There, you're going to try to find a lot of that in historicism. And then there's also a view that's called the futurist approach. A lot of dispensational ideologies adopt this, in which they see mostly this whole book as everything going way down into the future. So, and it's very hard to understand this because this was written for seven churches in East Asia, right? And so, if they were going to calculate the mark of the beast, which is the next chapter for next week, you have to think, would, would, would someone in Pergamum Read the book of Revelation and say the mark of the beast is 666. Who can know what that is? And then he does the calculation on it and said, well, who's, who's Vladimir Putin? Like, that, would, that wouldn't make sense now, would it? This book was written for first century Christians. So we have to just remember that. Right? So not everything is about Apache helicopters or maybe anything. Idealist view says that the symbolic pictures here portray just general abstract things of good versus evil, which doesn't have much direct application to the real world. And so what I would say here, what usually is adopted in more of a reformed interpretation of this, is what is called a historical redemptive understanding of the book of Revelation. That is, it's real history. It's historical, but it's about the redemption of God into the world, how he is redeeming the world. And so it will be clear as we lay this out how this makes sense. But redemptive historical, that is, looking at the book of Revelation through all the history of God's redemption in this world, actually does address all of these views. 
Right? So what, I, what I'm going to say is that symbolism here addresses many moments in real time in history. So it is a historical approach, somewhat. It's real history, but it's also a chronological history of redemption that has been working all the way back into the garden and is presently working today. So it's historicist and it's futurist and it's present. God is working redemption in all categories of this history. And it is idealist in the, fe- in the sense that this symbolism is abstracting major principles that can be plugged and dropped in various eras of human history. And so I hope to, if that's not very clear, uh, I hope that it would be clear by example as we go through these verses. Historical redemption works this way, and so we're going to operate, and I intend to operate on three eras of human history. There is this thing called B.C., the time before Jesus Christ, there is the era of Jesus Christ, and there is the era of A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. The one, the Lamb who was slain, who is on the throne presently. He is the Lord. So we had the time before Jesus, the time of Jesus, and then now the time of our Lord. His Lordship at this moment, where he rules and reigns until he has made all his enemies a footstool to his feet. This is redemptive historical. Looking at Revelation through these three stages makes it so clear. And not only that, we'll see here a set of three in the three theaters of war. There is a war in the womb, there is a war in heaven, and there is a war on earth. This is John's vision of the woman and the dragon. So let's get into it. War of the womb. Here is the woman. She is the faithful community of all believers. She is a symbol of the saints. She is a symbol of the holy ones of old, of present, and of future. The ones before Christ, the saints in the time of Christ, and the saints to come. She is clothed in the heaven. We know. We're not told who she is. That's why it's somewhat hard and debated. But we can infer who she is by what she's wearing. What she looks like. She is clothed with the sun. She stands on the moon. She has a diadem of 12 stars adorning her head. It is clear. This is exactly how the saints are described in scripture. Genesis 37. Joseph had a dream. That the sun and the moon and the stars all bowed down to him. And his brothers were offended by that dream. And his father was even offended. And said, shall I and your mother and your brothers... Bow down to you? For 11 stars bowed down to him. He had 11 brothers. His father was the sun and his mother was the moon. He interpreted all this symbolism to say, you're referring to us as the people of God. You're saying that us, the sun, the moon, and your 11 brothers, the 11 stars, were all bowed down to you? Now here we have a woman clothed with the sun as her glory. She stands upon the moon, that is, she is in the heavens. The heavens, in Ephesians it says, in Jesus Christ we are seated in the heavenly places. You are going to go to heaven. The saints now or the saints in heaven are up there. The the moon would be your footstool. You are clothed, what? With the light of God, the glory of God. We're told in uh, Isaiah 60, the sun will be no more and the moon will withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting glory. God's people are glorified by the light of God's presence in heaven. Before he clothed you in the garden with the hides of animals. In glory he will clothe you with light and glory that will match the glory of the sun. And here we have a woman who wears the sun as her garment. She is beautiful and glorious. She is the church. She is Israel. She is the people of God. Old, present, and future. 
and she is in labor pains. She is bearing a child. She cries in her labor pains. But is this just referring to one incident? Explicitly, yes, because there is a reference to a male child. But this is where redemptive history comes. It has always been this way. The second we fell, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Is this about Eve? There's a snake in this chapter and a woman giving birth. It's, that's the beauty of the prophetic wisdom of God's word. It is so locked tight and so synchronized. It is divine wisdom. God has always been subduing the world through the seeds of godly women. So it is before Christ, this is about Eve. But wait, also didn't Sarah have a problem bearing a child? It was so hard for her to bear one child. When Abraham was promised the stars, the stars as his children, the offspring of the holy ones. What's the diadem of stars? Abraham's children are stars. These are God's people that fill the heavens. That we, he, he, Abraham will have a multitude of children as numerous as the stars. That Eve had to bear a child. That Sarah needed to bear a child and she couldn't. But she bore a miraculous child in her old age. All before Christ. But then of course in the presence of Christ. The time of Christ. Christ's coming was this prophecy. That he was a child born of a woman. And he subdued the world this way. And if that's not enough, we're saying it's not back only. It's not Jesus' time just, but it's the future. That God is continuing to subdue this world. That is practical for us. We are futurists in the sense that we say this. We match 1 Timothy 25. That women in this present time, after Jesus Christ, will be saved through childbearing. That we are to bear children. In us bearing children, we begin to continue to stomp the head of that old Satan. That he says at the back end of Romans, Paul says, God is subduing Satan under your feet. But wait, I thought he subdued Satan under Jesus' feet. Yes, and both. He did the death stomp with Jesus. But we continue to fight the war until it is over. And that is through childbearing. Is, is, is practical and as simple as that. That she is groaning in the labor pains of children. And so here we have... A transition to the dragon. The dragon, we're told, is red. In Revelation, red always associates something that is going to bleed, to cause death, war. The war horse in Revelation is red. The dragon is very red. Red scales all around. He has seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. The beasts in the Old Testament, particularly Daniel, had these kind of horns. We're told that the tail of this dragon, swept one-third of the stars. Now, Abraham's offspring were to be stars. The people of God are 12 stars. There's 12 tribes to the people of God. The stars are us. You see how the war interacts now. The tail of the dragon is striking down the church. The dragon looks to kill the church. But most pointedly, and this is why it's a both-and, is he not killing Christians in Iran? Has he not slaughtered many of old times? But here we have, in verse 5, it says she gave birth to a male child, the one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. 
And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So it's about Jesus most pointedly. See, he has entered into this war with us. The dragon has always been trying to kill God's people. And trying to kill God's people in the future. But even most remarkably, trying to kill the Son of God. We're told that this dragon has his mouth open as the woman's legs are parted. The second the baby would come out, the dragon would consume. He is hungry for blood. He is thirsty for blood. His scales are red for a reason. He is violent. Does this not apply today to abortion? Is the dragon not still working? Don't we kill hundreds of thousands of little babies every year? Is not the soil of America saturated with this blood? Does not the vein blood of these children match the color of these scales? Is the dragon not at war? He is. Past, present, and future. We must fight him. Have babies and don't kill them. These are the sermon applications. That's literally what this is saying. Children, women will be saved through childbearing. Have babies to conquer the world. And by the way, don't kill your babies and feed them to your dragon. This is our warfare. But why is there so much money wrapped up into killing babies in our country? Because it's not just the people or the lobbyists. There is a dragon behind all this, you see. We need to know really who the enemy is. It's not Washington, D.C. It's a dragon you can't touch. And you can't vote out of office. You must sing him down under the praises of Jesus. We must pray him into oblivion. That's how we start to really fight the war. People have to go to church. We need a reformation. We need a revival. We don't need a quasi-godly president. For there is no man who can ever actually slay this dragon except the one king of kings. Let us not put our trust in men. And so therefore... The wilderness is where the woman seeks refuge. The woman fled. She ran away to a place that was prepared for her so she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And this is understood to be a time of tribulation. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, this set time, which matches 42 months, which matches three and a half years, or 1,260 days. It's all the same way of saying a time of tribulation, a time of fighting, a time in which we will, one-third of us, metaphorically speaking, will be slaughtered by this dragon. We're one of the one-thirds that say that's not being killed because we're in America. But if you were in Sudan or somewhere, one-third would seem like a pretty good ratio for how Christians are killed. We are at war. Now, the warfare is not just at the womb. The warfare is in the heavens, and it has expanded. He sees the vision a little more clearly now. The, dragons, the dragon is defeated and deposed. Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels go to war. In the Old Testament, Michael is always a representative of God's people who fights for them. So Michael is leading a war against the dragons, a cosmic battle. And we're told that no longer any place in heaven was left for the dragon. They won the terrain. Right? The, the hegemony of the war had shifted. The dragon is losing ground. He has moved from heaven. There was no place for him in heaven. 
This great dragon, we're told, was thrown down. This ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, thrown down with all his angels. See, we know clearly who the dragon is because we're told Satan and the devil. And no place was left for him. That is, no opportunity was given him. No foothold, no room in heaven was his. And here is the question, why? Why was he thrown down out of heaven? The interpretive voice comes immediately following. Visions always usually will follow with a clear interpretation. And verse 10 gives us that. There it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. It's a plural. There's many voices saying this. It's a plural of saying, our God, our brothers. Not one person saying this. There are many who are saying it. Maybe singing it, I don't know. But it sounds like the sound of many waters. Voices in which they are saying, the accuser has been removed. He has no place or opportunity to accuse our brothers. That is, the saints. There is no accusation that he can make against you. Now realize what this means. In heaven, God cannot accuse you. Satan cannot accuse you before God. Why? Jesus makes clear in John 12 exactly what this means. He says, Gentiles come to him and he says that he will go to the cross. He says, now, John 12, 31, now is the judgment of the world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. How will the rulers, how will Satan be cast out of this world in John 12? We're told, when I am lifted up above the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John interjects in his gospel and explains what that means. He says, he said this to show by what manner he was to die. So Jesus died on the cross. Jesus interprets his own death on the cross to say, when I am lifted up on that cross, I will draw people to myself. By this, the ruler of this world will be cast down. And so here we have the vision of Satan being cast out of heaven. The swap follows. That Satan comes down and Jesus goes up. He said, when I am lifted up on the cross, lifted up in the resurrection, and finally lifted up in the ascension, that he would go to sit on his throne in the heavenly court of God, the Ancient of Days, in which Satan, which means accuser, would be in that courtroom ready to accuse you day and night. He has no place to accuse you. There is no room in that courtroom for him. He has no desk. He has no hearing. He has no lawyers. He has no counsel. Because everything he could ever say, because Jesus has died and rose again, he opens his palms and shows you his scars, and Satan must shut his mouth. There is no room for him in heaven. He has been cast out. So the war has been won. It is over. It is over. There is nothing he could say. He has been cast down and the people sing. The accuser of our brothers has been removed. When you die and go before the Lord in judgment, there will be no one there to indict you. 
You will be open to the loving arms of the scarred Jesus Christ who is a lamb standing as though he had been slain. But that's not the end of the vision. Until we would get there, we understand he might not be in heaven to condemn you to hell. But he presently still is very much on this earth to make our lives very difficult. We're told that they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they have not loved their lives even unto death. That is the blood of the Lamb, the foundation of our victory is Jesus' blood. What he did on that cross, the blood of the Lamb. But the advance of the victory, the moving forward of the victory, the remainder of the war that needs to be fought is found in the preaching of that blood. You see, the word of their testimony, the blood of the Lamb, the blood that was shed for you and me. But not only that is what will conquer this dragon. We must preach this blood. We must preach this gospel. It is the word of the testimony. The blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony is how we finish the war. We must slay him this way. And then he adds, don't love your life unto death. In other words, you could die for this. But only in the first death. For the second death has no place for those who hold to the testimony of our Lord and of his Christ. Revelation 20, verse 6. It actually says that we will be conquerors and the second death will not touch us. Revelation 20, 11. How do you conquer? If you are being killed, that could be your conquest. That's how we conquered. You see how the historical redemptive works? How did Jesus conquer? It looked like he was dying. That was him killing the dragon. But notice this. It's not all just about Jesus. You and I are in this fight. We are told, again, we are told. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And it doesn't say, for Jesus loved not his life unto death. Even though that's true. Do you see? We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of testimony because Jesus did not love his life unto death. No. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of testimony because you and I did not love our life unto death. Do you see how it works to not just be past or Jesus-oriented, but also future-oriented, present-oriented? Right now, we are entering into that war with him. And we are to fight with the same tools that he has given us. Ephesians 6 gives us those tools to wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword which is the spirit of God, the shot proving our feet for the preparation of the preaching of the gospel. These are our weapons. We, we can only fight with what he has fought with. We're not going to get tools that he didn't use. Jesus fought with these tools, not loving his life unto death, and he slayed the dragon. And here we are, understanding that the only sword we are given is the sword of the Spirit. And the only shoes we have is the gospel that makes us go. And therefore, if we would not save our life, we will kill that dragon. We will make an advance for the gospel in our culture. This is the war we are called to, and we cannot get out of it. Because whether you like it or not, he has been cast out of heaven. And he has landed on the earth. And we are still here now with him.
And the last theater of war is a warfare on earth. This is what we fight. The dragon was thrown down and was furious and began to pursue the woman. She was given wings to fly away to the wilderness. This is how it works. Old Jesus knew. Redemptive history. God has always been giving his people wings to fly away to the wilderness. Exodus 19, when they came out of Egypt, he says, I took you on wings like eagles. Into what? A city? No, into the desert, the wilderness. When they came out of Egypt, he said in Deuteronomy 32, he maintained them in the wilderness as an eagle having spread its wings. He blocked them from the hard rays of the wilderness and the dehydration in the sun like a mother bird over them, keeping them with a cloud above What? Feeding them like a mother bird with manna from heaven. They walked through the wilderness, but with the wings of an eagle. They were provided for every step of the way. And so is it referring to that? Yes. Is it referring to us in the future? Yes. That's the point. Yes. That's the point. He still is providing for the woman who is running away in the wilderness. That he has given you wings. Isaiah says that you are mounted up on wings like an eagle. And Isaiah 40 goes on to say, I prepare a way for you, a way for you through the wilderness. That is, through this, God is always providing a way for us to actually have victory and success. Even though our success will potentially look like utter defeat and even death. But he will always sustain you enough. He will always keep you enough. And so closing with this, that war we fight on this earth is remarkable to think World War II. This is called inaugurated. D-Day won the war, but there was still more fighting to happen. When we took the beaches of Normandy, we controlled the European theater of war. And there were so many troops and so much force flooding through France than Germany that from a strategic point of view, the war was already lost. This is the cross. It is over. The cross, he said, it is finished. He has crushed the head of the serpent. Satan is removed from the heavens. But still, even after D-Day, you have to finish the thing. And this is our glory and honor to enter into this with him. To love and to love our enemies. This is the point. Realize what this vision is telling us. This is the television. This is the real vision we should be listening. How can you love your enemies if you think that they are demons? If you don't have this vision, you don't have the conceptual framework to really actually love your enemy as we're called to. If you can't see the enemy behind your enemy, then the first enemy you see is your absolute enemy. If we demonize one another, how could we love our enemies? But here we are given a vision, and I hope a revolution, to see things for the way they really are. That those who hate us and persecute us, Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. They know not what they do. They are under the deception of Satan, who is the deceiver of the whole world. How could he say that on the cross about those who put him there with the nails?
Because Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew the dragon of old, the ancient serpent, the slithering snake, the lying one. He knew who the real enemy was. And he knew that his death on that cross was the victory. That he would love his enemies unto death. And if we would understand that, catch that vision, then this is the war that we have been given to fight as well. There is no room in heaven for Satan. But we must realize that if God is ever going to do anything good with New Life Presbyterian Church, we have to keep Satan out. Ephesians 4 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give an opportunity for the devil. The word there for opportunity can also be translated territory or land. The NIV translates it foothold. If we can't love each other, if we can't forgive each other, if we hold grudges with each other, Satan might not be able to accuse you before God. He might not have any place in heaven, but he is on this earth. And Ephesians says that we could give him foothold in this church if we do not learn to, to live what we preach. If he has forgiven me of all my sins, and I sing about it every day, but I hold grudges with those here I worship with, that is a foothold for Satan to come alongside this church, divide it, break it, and destroy it. We cannot give him that foothold, for we are in a spiritual war. Dear Father God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for this revolution you've given us. Lord, we pray that it would result in a reformation. Lord, we pray that we would see your glory as the beginning sun, the clothing that we wear, that you've given us glory that we will be clothed with like a garment. Father, we thank you for the enemy, that we know him, that we are aware that we are not our enemies, that even our enemies are not ultimately our enemies, that we have one great enemy. And you've given us great power, sacrificial love and the gospel and your blood. Now, Lord, we ask that you'd fill us with your spirit, especially as we praise you to close today. That you would fill us in such a way that you would fill us with your love. That we would love our enemies and not love our life unto death. In Jesus' name, amen.